In Genesis chapter 15, we read about an extraordinary event that took place with the Lord and Abram. In this chapter, we see the Lord make a covenant with Abram, but there was something very unusual that took place in this covenant ceremony. The Lord appeared to Abram in a vision and told him, your reward will be very great. But Abram pushed back and said, how? How is this possible? I don't even have a son. And the Lord said, I I promise you, you're going to have descendants. They're going to be so numerous. They're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And the Lord told him, you're going to possess this land, the land of Canaan. And again, Abram protested, how? How is this going to be? How How will I know? And so the Lord gave him some instructions in response to his question. The Lord told him, Um, to bring a a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. And then we see in verse 12 that as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And then we read that when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. You see, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch represented the presence of the Lord going between the pieces of the animals that had been cut in half and laid on either side of each other. And what's noteworthy about this event is that Abram did not also pass between the animals that had been cut in half and laid on each side. Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam write about this event in their book, God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants. And they point out that while this uh, event may seem very strange to us, it was a ceremony that formalized a covenant between God and Abram. The ceremony enshrined the promises that God made to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had promised to make Abram into a great nation, to bless him and to make his name great. He also promised to bless those who blessed Abram and to curse those who cursed him. And he said that through Abram, all families of the earth will be blessed. And the covenant ceremony involved an oath in which the covenant partners bring the curse of death upon themselves if they are not faithful to the covenant relationships and promises. And they note, Gentry and Wellam note that walking between the animals cut in half is a way of saying, may I become like these dead animals if I do not keep my promises and my oath. And they also note that the fact that only God passes between the pieces is quite remarkable and shows that the promises depend upon him and him alone. And in their book, they go on to quote Ray Vanderland, who wrote this about Genesis chapter 15. 
what an awesome God we have. What incredible love he has for his creatures. Imagine the creator of the universe, the holy and righteous God, was willing to leave heaven and come down to a nomad's tent in the dusty, hot desert of Negev to express his love for his people. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, along with a dove and a young pigeon, God told Abraham. Then when those animals had been sacrificed and laid out on both sides of their shed blood, God made a covenant. To do that, he walked barefoot in the form of a blazing torch through the path of blood between the animals. Think of it. Almighty God walking barefoot through a pool of blood. The thought of a human being doing that is, to say the least, unpleasant. Yet God, in all his power and majesty, expressed his love that personally. By participating in that traditional Near Eastern covenant-making ceremony, he made it unavoidably, unavoidably clear to the people of that time, place, and culture what he intended to do. I love you so much, Abraham, God was saying, and I promise that this covenant will come true for you and your children. I will never break my covenant with you. I'm willing to put my own life on the line to make you understand. Picturing God passing through that gory path between the carcasses of animals, imagining the blood splashing as he walked, helps us recognize the faithfulness of God's commitment. He was willing to express in terms his chosen people could understand that he would never fail to do what he promised. And he ultimately fulfilled his promise by giving his own life, his own blood, on the cross. Because we look at God's dealings with Abraham as some remote piece of history in a far-off land, we often fail to realize that we, too, are part of the long line of people with whom God made a covenant on that rocky plain near Hebron. And like those who came before us, we have broken that covenant. When he walked in the dust of the desert and through the blood of the animals Abraham had slaughtered, God was making a promise to all the descendants of Abraham to everyone in the household of faith. When God splashed through the blood, he did it for us. We're not simply individuals in relationship to God. We're part of a long line of people marching back through history from our famous Jewish ancestors, David, Hezekiah, and Peter, to the millions of unknown believers from the ancient Israelites and the Jewish people of Jesus' day to the Christian community dating from the early church. We're part of a community of people with whom God established relationship in the dust and sand of the Negev. But there's more. When God made covenant with his people, he did something no human being would have ever considered doing. In the usual blood covenant, each party was responsible for keeping only his side of the promise. When God made covenant with Abraham, however, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. If this covenant is broken, Abraham, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or yours, I will pay the price, says God. If you or your descendants for whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. And at that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son, Jesus. We are continuing our five-part sermon series entitled Man of Sorrows, King of Glory. And this morning we are considering the death of of Jesus. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we read, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking 
the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we study the death of Jesus, I want us to consider a few things. First, we will simply consider what happened in the death of Jesus. In other words, we will look at the historical record of what took place when Jesus was put to death. Secondly, we'll consider why. We'll consider the meaning and the significance of the death of Jesus. And finally, we'll consider briefly how the death of Christ continues to shape us as God's people. We see in Scripture the importance of the historical account of Christ's death. The Lord wants us to know what happened in history. Our faith is built upon and rooted in historical events, and therefore the Scripture provides us with a historical record. Scripture also impresses upon us the reason for Christ's death. We are provided with an explanation of the significance and the meaning of Christ's death, what he actually accomplished. We also see in Scripture that as those who have been united to Christ, as those who belong to Jesus, we are exhorted to live our lives together in light of the cross of Christ. So, we'll begin with what happened. In Mark chapter 14, we read about the arrest of Jesus the night before he was crucified when he was betrayed by Judas. Judas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, led a crowd organized by the chief priests, scribes, and elders who apprehended Jesus in the darkness of night. This group of Jewish religious leaders known as the Sanhedrin, led by the chief priest, conducted a sham trial in the middle of the night to convict Jesus. They could not do what they did in the light of day. They could not do this when people could observe what they were doing because they knew that they would face opposition. They needed to do this in the night, in the darkness. They were not interested in truth. They were not interested in justice. They were not interested in right and wrong. They were singular in their purpose to convict Jesus, to condemn him to die. Before the trial, Jesus was abandoned by his disciples, and during the trial, he was betrayed by Peter, just as he had foretold. Not only was he falsely accused, not only was he subjected to a sham trial, but he was also abandoned by his disciples and betrayed by his closest friend in his darkest hour. As soon as the morning light appeared, the Sanhedrin brought Jesus to Pilate, and this is where we pick up in Mark chapter 15. I'm going to read Mark chapter 15, and I encourage you to follow along. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, 
Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he had usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. 
And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When they brought Jesus before Pilate, the council made many accusations against Jesus in a concerted effort to convince him that Jesus was an evildoer who deserved death. Pilate was amazed that Jesus did not defend himself against such accusations. In verse 6, the scene shifts from Jesus before Pilate to Pilate in front of the crowd. Pilate had a custom of releasing a prisoner for the Jews during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The crowd wanted him to do this again, so Pilate offered to release Jesus. But the Sanhedrin stirred up the crowd to do their bidding, and the crowd obliged, calling on Pilate to release the prisoner Barabbas, who was a murderer. So Pilate asked, well, then what do you want me to do with Jesus? The crowd shouted, crucify him. The crowd called on Pilate to execute Jesus in horrific fashion. The problem for Pilate was that he was not convinced that Jesus had committed a crime or was any kind of serious threat. So he said, what evil has he done? But similar to the Sanhedrin, the crowd was not interested in justice. They were not interested in the truth. They were not interested in persuading Pilate that Jesus had actually done anything evil or worthy of death. Instead, they shouted all the more, crucify him. Pilate caved and gave the crowd what they wanted. Even though he believed Jesus to be innocent, he chose political expediency instead of doing the right thing. To satisfy them, he released Barabbas, had Jesus scourged, and then handed him over to be crucified. In a sense, Pilate's decision would foreshadow what Jesus would accomplish at the cross. He condemned the innocent man to die, which allowed the guilty man to go free. Mark briefly mentioned the fact that Pilate had Jesus scourged. And I think it might be easy for us to read that without reflecting much on what happened to Jesus when he was scourged. But scourging or flogging was no minor punishment. It was horrific. Bible scholar James Edwards writes this, Flogging was a cruel and merciless preparation for the crucifixion. As a prelude to the crucifixion, Josephus says the prisoner was stripped and bound to a post and beaten with a leather whip woven with bits of bone and metal. No maximum number of strokes was prescribed. The scourging lacerated and stripped the flesh, often exposing bones and entrails. One of its purposes was to shorten the duration of the crucifixion. But scourging was so brutal that some prisoners died before reaching the cross. Jesus did not die when he was scourged, but have to go on to face the cross. While only briefly mentioning the scourging, Mark gives much more attention and detail to the mockery of Jesus. Before he was crucified, Jesus was mocked by the Roman soldiers who scoffed at the idea that he was a king. The soldiers clothed him with royal robes and placed a crown made of thorns on his head and very sarcastically bowed down to him and worshipped him while they simultaneously derided him, spit on him, and beat him. The idea that Jesus was a king was a repulsive joke to them. After this hate-filled mockery, they led Jesus out to be crucified. 
But after being beaten repeatedly and tortured severely, Jesus needed help carrying the cross. They grabbed Simon of Cyrene, who helped Jesus carry the cross, to the place of his death, a hill called Golgotha, just outside of Jerusalem. Before he was crucified, Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh, which functioned as a narcotic offered to lessen the pain of those being crucified. Once again, Mark mentions in a brief and matter-of-fact way that Jesus refused the offer. Then he tells us Jesus was crucified. I know I'm being redundant, but once again, Mark describes this in a very brief, succinct, matter-of-fact way. There is no sensationalizing the events surrounding Jesus' death. Mark unequivocally wants his readers to understand that he was not writing mythology or theological propaganda. He was providing a straightforward historical account of what happened to Jesus when he was put to death. Crucifixion was believed to be the worst form of execution in the first century Roman world. The Roman philosopher Cicero, who died about 40 years before Jesus was born, described crucifixion as the most cruel and horrifying punishment. He also said the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts. In other words, it was not proper from his perspective for Roman citizen to speak about crucifixion, not even to think about it. Crucifixion was reserved for non-Roman citizens. Crucifixion led to a slow and agonizing death. The crucified person would eventually die from hypovolemic shock or exhaustion asphyxia or heart failure or a combination of these things. It could take hours, even days, for a person to die upon a cross. Jesus was beaten so severely before he was crucified that he died in three hours. Jesus died in a way that was not only physically excruciating, but also utterly humiliating. The crucified person was subject to embarrassment, humiliation, and shame as they experienced the physical horror of the cross. It was Roman custom to have the cause of crucifixion affixed to the cross. In another ironic twist, Pilate had an inscription declaring King of the Jews placed on the cross above his head. The idea that the Messiah, the Son of God, could suffer and die upon a Roman cross was scandalous. The soldiers mocked him. The religious leaders mocked him. If he is the Messiah, why doesn't he save himself? Even the crowd and those crucified along with him mocked him and ridiculed him. The idea that he was a king or savior was so absurd to them because of his inability to save himself from such a humiliating form of execution. One writer said, if you're living in the Mediterranean world of the first century and you want to promote your religion, a crucified God is not your headline. The Bible is honest about this. The Apostle Paul, among others, faced incredible difficulty when preaching the message of the cross. 
In 1 Corinthians 1.23, he said, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Jews want miraculous signs, demonstrations of power. Greeks want wisdom. They want to be wowed by argument and persuasion. Paul says, we don't do either of those things. We preach Christ crucified. Not exactly appealing to anybody. On the one hand, Mark did not try to, sens- uh, to sensationalize the account of Jesus' death. But we also see that he did not try to cover it up when there may have been a temptation to do so. The scripture does not try to cover up the manner of Christ's death, even though it would be looked down upon by the watching world, even though it would be ridiculed by all kinds of people. The scripture does not try to cover up the death of Christ upon a Roman cross. Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God, was crucified. And there was darkness over the whole land at the sixth hour, which was noon, until the ninth hour, which was three in the afternoon. It was then that as he died upon the cross, Jesus quoted Psalm 22.1 as he cried out in Aramaic, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark records two significant things that happened when Jesus died. First, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There were numerous curtains in the temple. Most likely he was referring to the curtain that hung in front of the room known as the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the special place of God's dwelling. Mark doesn't provide any commentary on this event, just tells us that it happened. Second, upon seeing Jesus die, the Roman centurion declared, truly, this man was the Son of God. The very first sentence in Mark's gospel reads like this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yet it was the centurion watching Jesus die, the Roman centurion, who's the first human recorded in Mark's gospel, confessing Jesus as the Son of God. As he watched him die in humiliating and horrific fashion, he confessed Christ to be the Son of God. Mark makes note of a few eyewitnesses who were present when Jesus died on the cross. He mentions the women who were there, who had followed him, who had ministered to him. He provides their names, saying they were there, they were witnesses. We also read about his burial. We are told who buried him, where he was buried, and who was watching. Once again, he provides specific details, not only regarding his death, but regarding his burial. He says, here's how it happened, who was there, here's who was involved, here's who was an eyewitness. Again, speaking to the historical reliability of the gospel accounts. The historical writers were not writing myth. They were not writing theological propaganda. They were providing historical, reliable records for us to know what happened because our faith is rooted in historical events. 
Jesus died a horrible death. He was tortured, mocked, and executed. He was buried in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. Many witnesses attested to what happened. It is worth noting that non-Christian Bible scholars affirm the major details regarding the death of Jesus Christ. So, we know what happened. But of course, we need to ask, why did it happen? What was the meaning of his death? What did his death accomplish? What we see in Scripture is that God begins to reveal to us the meaning of Christ's death long before Christ died on the cross. We have seen in the book of Genesis, God begins to reveal and to point to the death of Christ. In the book of Exodus, we read how the Lord delivered his people from bondage under Pharaoh in Egypt. The Lord called Moses to confront Pharaoh and lead the Israelites out of Egypt. But just as the Lord said, Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go. Therefore, the Lord brought judgment upon Pharaoh and Egypt in the form of plagues. The tenth and final plague involved the death of every firstborn in the land of Egypt. But the Lord promised to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. To prepare the Israelites for the tenth and final plague, the Lord instituted the Passover. Every family was to kill a one-year-old lamb without blemish and put some of the blood from the lamb on the doorposts and lintel of their houses. In Exodus 12, 12 and 13, the Lord said, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Lord would execute judgment on his enemies. But the people of Israel, God's people, would find refuge under the blood of the Lamb. For the people of Israel, the Passover, an Exodus event, was the Lord's great act of salvation that shaped their identity as God's people. We see numerous places in the Old Testament scriptures which point back to the Exodus, reminding God's people that he chose them, he redeemed them, and he saved them. More than a thousand years after the Exodus event, Jesus arrived on the scene. And when we read about the life of Jesus, we see numerous parallels between his life and the Exodus. We see numerous references from his life pointing back to the Exodus. And at the end of his life, we read in Mark 14, 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? What becomes clear is that in his last supper with the disciples, Jesus viewed the Passover as the basis for understanding the meaning of his impending death. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 and 28, we read, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take it, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the, that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. John Dixon writes, Jesus took the traditional Passover themes of blood and forgiveness and related them to what is about to happen to him. Jesus' blood, just like that of the Passover lamb, would be poured out for the forgiveness of God's people. 
God's judgment would fall upon the Lamb, Jesus, so that it might pass over sinners. While it is true that many others suffered horrible deaths on Roman crosses, we need to remember that Jesus' death was unique. As a matter of fact, his death was vastly different from any other death, and we see this in his prayer after the Last Supper. The night before his death, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. When Jesus spoke of the cup, he was using imagery from the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 25, 15, in Isaiah 51, 17, we see references to the cup of God's wrath. When he prayed the night before he died, he referenced the cup of God's wrath that we poured out on him. When Jesus died on the cross, he experienced suffering that was perceptible to those who observed when he was physically tortured and brutally executed. But he also experienced suffering that was probably imperceptible to those observing. When God's wrath was poured out on him for the sins of his people. Jesus not only suffered an excruciating death upon the cross, a physically excruciating death, but he also experienced the wrath of God being poured out on him for the sins of God's people. As our Passover lamb, he was sacrificed in our place taking God's judgment upon himself. He suffered in a way that was unique to him and that he suffered the judgment for the sins of others. And we see this, for example, in Isaiah 53. Jesus understood himself to be the fulfillment of the suffering servant In Isaiah 53, listen to what we read in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 through 12. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that has led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus understood that he was the fulfillment of this servant who suffered for the sake of others. He was despised, rejected, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, oppressed, crushed for us because of our sin. He endured the wrath of God for our sin. He took the judgment of God for our sin upon himself. Jesus died for us so that we can take refuge in him so that God's judgment will pass over us. God's word speaks about the death of Christ in numerous ways. Jesus spoke of his death in terms of a ransom being paid. In Mark 10, 45, he said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Colossians 2, 13-15, Paul spoke of his death in terms of a debt being canceled, and in terms of defeating Satan, when he wrote, And you, who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus defeated Satan through his death on the cross. He canceled our record of debt at the cross. Jesus also spoke about his death as a demonstration of his love. In John 15, 12 through 13, he said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus was pointing to his death on the cross. He was saying, I love you. I want you to love others. I want you to love others in the way that I have loved you. And I'm going to demonstrate my love for you as I lay down my life for you. All the ways that Scripture unpacks the significance and meaning of Christ's death are wonderful and powerful. And brothers and sisters, we ought to think about these things. We ought to meditate on these things, reflect on them. At the same time, it is also important for us to see that the primary way the Scripture speaks of Christ's crucifixion is that when Jesus died on the cross, he bore our sin and its penalty in our place so that we will receive the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, in our place, as our substitute, taking the penalty for our sin, receiving God's judgment in himself, so that we can receive the forgiveness of our sins, so that we too will be passed over. Brothers and sisters, this gets right to the heart of the gospel. 
The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ. We are those who are sinners. We are those who are deserving of God's judgment. Yet God, our creator, who made us in his image to love him and to obey him, has provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sins even though we've disobeyed him, even though we've rebelled against him, even though we, like sheep, have turned and gone astray. God has provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sins, to be saved from his judgment, to be reconciled to himself, and he did so by providing Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Friends, if you are not a Christian, our hope and our desire and prayer for you is that you will believe in Christ and be saved. You need a Savior just like we need a Savior. And God has provided a Savior, and his name is Jesus. Let today be the day of salvation. Believe in Christ and be saved. There is so much more to be said about the significance of the death of Christ, but I want to take a few moments to consider how the cross of Christ continues to shape us as God's people. Scripture recounts for us the death of Christ upon the cross. Scripture explains for us the significance of Christ's death upon the cross. And Scripture exhorts us to live our lives in light of the cross of Christ. When Christ died on the cross, he accomplished something for his people. He accomplished our salvation, our redemption. He paid the price for our sins. And for those of us who are in Christ, his finished work on the cross is meant to continually shape our understanding of who we are and how we are to live. What is central to our identity as God's people? How are we to understand who we are? I can't think of better words than what we find in Romans 5, 6 through 11, where we read, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received Reconciliation. Who are we? Fundamentally, who are we? Well, we were enemies of God who had rebelled against Him and were deserving of His wrath. But that's not who we are anymore. Why? Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't think there's anything greater that we can point to when we seek to understand who we are, our identity. We are those for whom Christ has died. We are those who have been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus 
Christ. We are those who belong to him. We are free from sin's curse. We don't have to fear the worst thing that could happen to us, the judgment of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Reflecting on the cross of Jesus Christ continually reminds us of who we are. Moreover, the cross continues to shape how we live. We see this, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, through chapter 5, verse 2, where we read, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God's word teaches us how we are to live our lives together as those who have been united to Christ. We are given commands. We are given exhortations. We are taught what it looks like to belong to Jesus Christ. And those commands, those exhortations, those instructions are rooted in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We are commanded to love one another because God has loved us in Christ. And we are to understand Christ's love for us in that he gave himself up for us. In light of what Christ has done for us, we are to love one another. We are to be tender-hearted toward one another. We are to forgive one another. We are to do these things because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. The cross of Jesus Christ is meant to shape our hearts, our minds, our words, our deeds, our affections, our relationships. We are to be people of the cross. So brothers and sisters, our faith is rooted in the historical events of Christ's death upon the cross. And we know why he died upon the cross. We know that he died in our place, taking the punishment we deserve so that we could receive the forgiveness of our sins and escape the wrath of God. And now, as those who have been saved by Christ, we are to live our lives in light of what Christ has done for us. So let's pray that we will be a people who are shaped by the cross. Let's pray that the, the cross will loom large, not merely as a symbol on a wall, but in our lives together. Let's pray that we will see the evidence of the cross in our lives, in our relationships, that God may be glorified in us. May it be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you have revealed to us in your word. We thank you that you have provided for us a record of Christ's death for us upon the cross and what he endured for our sake. We thank you that you have unpacked for us the meaning, the significance of Christ's death, helping us to understand what he accomplished for us. And we thank you for the exhortations to live in light of what Christ has done for us through his death on the cross. We pray that we will be a people who are shaped 
by Christ and what he's done for us. We pray the evidence of his love will be present in our lives and our relationships that you might be glorified in us. We humbly ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.